Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Mexico, and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Yep, she's a cooking out there on the world scene and the domestic scene. Is she not? <laughs> and, and folks, right now it's a simmer. Wait till we get to the boil part. But I'm going to be covering it for you, and not the way the rest of the media is, as you already know, those of you who have been listening to me around the country, and around the planet. So, today is the first of three or four shows, kind of a series. We're going to go over, last week we went over Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, number one trader in the United States. His fundamental change of America, which he put in place, which he promised us, or should we say warned us of, but we weren't listening, is steadily progressing in true progressive and communist fashion. Throw in a little radical Islam in his case. You know, he is wildly adept at long-term thinking and organization. The poison pills in education, in government, in agencies, in appointments, in control, in erosion of the Constitution, he inserted them. Yes, others before him had their inserts too, and we've talked about them going all the way back to Woodrow Wilson in 1913, the when he established the Fed, and did his other stuff. You know, he is really the father of the progressive movement in American government. But Barack Obama took it to a whole new level. And to understand how the spider at the center of the progressive web, Barack Obama, with his Soros and billionaire and globalist brethren. How they have done this, you need to understand the people that he has inserted into places, high places, controlling places in government. And we're going to be doing that because the folks who were involved in the Ukraine overthrow in 2014, engineered by the United States, i.e. Barack Obama, which has resulted in the Ukraine war, the folks involved in the Israeli and Mideast conflicts going back decades all work for Barack Obama. And all those people now, quote-unquote, for Joe Biden, President Cadaver, who obviously doesn't even know what day of the week it is. Who do you think's really running the show? Barry himself told you what he was going to do. He was going to stay in the shadows. The quote was on the website last week. The video, it's going to be on the website again this week just to remind you. So over the next, oh, four or so weeks, we're going to be talking about, and we're going to start off with today, Susan Rice, uh, you have no idea how much power she has, and she runs the White House, and she is a direct conduit to Barack Obama, and she plays Joe Biden like a puppet on a string at Obama's behest. And we're going to be talking about Anthony Blinken, that's without an H, Anthony Blinken, because he's been involved since day one, going all the way back to the 90s and the Clintons. And all these people are interlinked. It's really fascinating to see how this has evolved, how they have constructed this elite control, if you will. 
and how they bend the minds of the people using lies, subterfuge, and psyops. Listen to my psyop shows, the history of psyops in the United States and the planet, going back, oh, four or five months. It was a several-part series. You'll find it fascinating. You'll see how you are being manipulated without even knowing it. And they use that manipulation, and they use international events, which they engineer, to set the course of domestic policy to achieve their ideological and globalist ends at the expense of American sovereignty and individual rights and freedoms, as ensconced in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, my shows from four or five weeks ago. Listen to those, too. It all ties in, folks. This is all I've been building a foundation for you. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about Ray and Comey and Clapper and Newland and Garland and Clinton, because that is the cabal that kind of rules the roost, along with, oh, several other heads of agencies and departments who are longtime Obama and or progressive movement associates. And then, of course, I'll tell you the rest of the story. And then I'm going to have a little economic news for you. None of it very bright, despite the nonsense you're hearing over the mainstream media. I mean, look, math is math. Two plus two is four. It's not five. It's not three. My job is to bring you back to two plus two is four. You can do with it what you wish. You can believe what you wish. And then we're going to have a huge rat-a-tat-tat because (laughs) I wouldn't even dent it, but it'll make your eyes pop. But first, our founder's quote. John Adams, and remember, folks, this is a two-edged sword, this quote. Quote, as to the history of the revolution, my ideas may be peculiar, perhaps singular. What do we mean by the revolution? The war? That was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The revolution was in the minds of the people. And this was effected from 1760 to 1775, in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. Unquote. Think about that. They've had their day in the sun, folks, while we were asleep at the switch watching football games and complimenting ourselves on how great we were. Uh, and now it's our turn. But we have to make it happen. We have to be informed. We have to be clever, as clever as they. And we have to be as organized as they are. And to understand how to do this and how to be successful, you need to understand the people, the linkages, and the flow of power in Washington, D.C. And for that matter, in the developed world. So first, our rant story, and then we'll get started. Do you notice how our government always seems to underkill and then overkill? doesn't matter what it is. They don't react, and then they overreact. I mean, perhaps that's a function of government, but I think it's a function of the people in the government and how they think, or don't think, as the case may be. And it reminds me of a little deal we went through here on the ranch this week. There's this fence that kind of protects the haystack. And the elk are beginning to come down. Cattle will be coming in December 1. And obviously the hay has to be protected. And a lot of this fence has been broken down by cows and broken down by elk and deer over the last several years and needed replacement. And it's only, oh, give or take, 100 yards of fence. I mean, this is not a huge fencing project. Well, my folks here at the ranch, I gave them the uh, autonomy and authority to get this done. And to my horror, I found out that they had gone out and spent almost $1,700 on materials and all sorts of things and spray paint to mark the line and strings and most things being unnecessary to building a 100-yard stretch of fence. 
Well, the fence is built and the fence looks pretty as it ought to for that kind of cost. And it'll function beautifully. So no complaints there. But it brings me back to my point. And that is, very simply, you do what you need to do to accomplish an effective goal and an end. You do it efficiently, you do it with the least cost, and you do it in the least time, utilizing the least amount of resources. You do not overkill nor underkill, whether it's a 100-yard fence or whether it's international politics in Europe, Ukraine, the Mideast, Israel, and Iran. Unless, of course, the underkill or the overkill is timed and purposeful. We'll be getting into that in this show. So let's talk about Susan Rice first, shall we? Interesting lady. Rhodes Scholar. Went to all the hoity-toity name universities. Has a doctorate in international relations. And she has been involved since, oh, the 90s in the Clinton and Obama and now, quote-unquote, Biden regimes. And she is, along with Valerie Jarrett, another person we'll be discussing, one of the closest people to Obama, kind of his right hand, if you will, while he was in office. And you know what, folks? His right hand, now that he's still in office, but with the foil of cadaver out in front of him. She was involved in the 2014 overthrow of the Ukrainian government in the color revolution engineered by Obama and his CIA agency and CIA picks, and the Russian invasion of Crimea, the rise of ISIS. And along the way, she has had Obama's full support and blessing, and she has vanquished every single, shall we say, enemy. Anybody who stood in her way of her policy, she's known to cuss with regularity, she doesn't take no for an answer, and she is politically adept. She vanquished Chuck Hagel, Obama's defense secretary and the former senator from Nebraska. She didn't like him because he criticized Obama's Syria policy. You know, that policy where he drew the red line and didn't enforce the red line and created millions of Muslim refugees to Europe? You don't think that was intentional, folks? Do you see what's going on around the world in terms of people rising to the defense of the Palestinians? Not that the Palestinians have been perfectly treated by Israel or the West, but the Islamic influence and the radical Islamic influence in Europe right now and in the United States is attributable to Susan Rice and Barack Obama's very well thought out and very well crafted and disguised policies in the Mideast, starting with Syria. She was also upset with Hegel and his foot dragging on closing Gitmo, which was, of course, her boss and confidence objective. Prior to that, Obama appointed her as ambassador to the United Nations, which is really one of the top diplomatic posts, almost a cabinet-level position in government. And when Hegel was ousted with Susan Rice's help, she took over the National Security Council. And Rice and Obama expanded it from about 50 people to about 300. They brought in all the Homeland Security and Department of Defense people. And it became, unfortunately, less effective. It became a firefighting brigade rather than a planning brigade. Perhaps some of that intentionally, because, you know, you never let a crisis go to waste. In fact, after Rice was appointed as head of the NSC, Obama dropped down to the meeting room down there and told all the high mucky mucks at the NSC, including Rice, that he was counting on the group to shore up his foreign policy plans, which was code for, you guys have the power. The State Department and the Department of Defense does not. She also ousted Richard Holbrook. 
He was the former special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. She hated him, and he hated her, I might add. Now, this guy was not a nice guy. I mean, he was a bully, and he was a narcissist. And Rice, not being bashful at all, although she likes to stay in the shadows where possible, dared to question some of his policy proposals. According to William Johnson, he's a former senior State Department official, quote, those two absolutely hated each other, unquote. It's interesting to know how the levers of power work in the government. Keep this in mind over the next two, three, four weeks as I bring you this series. But the closer you are to the head of your agency or your department or the president or whatever, in terms of physical proximity within whatever lavish (laughs) building your department or agency happens to be housed in, the more power you have, the more you are held in awe by the rest of the lemmings at that particular department or agency. So Holbrook was originally very close to the seventh floor of the State Department, which is where the Secretary of State's suite of offices is. But after Obama was in office for only a year, he was in the basement down the hall from the cafeteria. And guess what? Susan Rice was right up there on the seventh floor, just a few doors away from the Secretary of State, which included, by the way, Hillary Clinton. Rice has been able to outmaneuver and outlast virtually every other quote-unquote prominent colleague, Secretary of State Clinton. And by the way, there's no love lost between the two of them, although they collaborate on globalist policy. And former defense secretaries Robert Gates and Leon Panetta. Obama's behest. She signed on to Biden's first presidential campaign as a foreign policy advisor, which is how she kind of started with Obama back then, 2004 to 2008. There's a former NSC staffer, National Security Council staffer, speaking on the condition of anonymity, of course. I don't blame him in this case. And he was talking about internal White House politics. Quote, there is a reason why Obama has an intense loyalty to Susan. In 2006, she could have easily gone to the Hillary camp. She took a significant career risk by signing on with Obama's campaign. He views her like a sister, unquote. You might be interested to know that Rice was almost named to Secretary of State, not Clinton. But that was impossible given the plans of the progressive cabal because of all the political controversy she stirred when she made all those erroneous statements, I mean flat-out lies about the videos and Benghazi, etc., on those five Sunday shows that fateful day back when. Currently, she has stepped out of the national security head cheese role, so to speak. I mean, she still controls it. But she now runs the White House, literally runs the White House. She is the go-to person for whatever needs to happen in terms of George Soros, Barack Obama, and the rest of the cabal. And she is the one, it is thought, who pulls the strings of cadaver, the little puppet strings that they have so cleverly embedded in his vacuous torso. And she was the one who behind the scenes kind of guided and instructed John Kerry when he was Secretary of State. Oh, there's another winner for you. Maybe we'll add him to the list of folks we'll disclose a bit about. When he was negotiating the Iran nuclear deal, you know, Obama's pet project. You'll agree not to develop nuclear weapons for 10 years, but after that, have at it. And she was involved when Clinton went in to remove Gaddafi in Libya, thereby destabilizing Libya and giving terrorists yet another chaos-ridden stronghold. And historians now look at that and think that little thought was given to the fact that America really had no interest in Libya. 
that there was no plan to deal with the country after Gaddafi's fall, or should we say his murder. And today, Libya is a disaster. Ask yourself, was that by design? And we're really going to have two rest of the stories for you. One on our friend Susan Rice, and one on Blinken, who we'll be getting to next. And the rest of the story on Susan Rice is a little peep into the inner workings of her mind. So back in the Clinton days, when Rice was a rising star on the U.S. National Security Council and was working under Richard Clark, there was a bloody genocide in Rwanda. By the way, there's been three million people killed in Rwanda. You don't hear anything about that, do you? And there was an interagency teleconference. And let me give you a quote of hers. If we use the word genocide and are seen as doing nothing, what will be the effect on the November congressional election? Unquote. Does that kind of give you an idea of the cold-blooded nature of Susan Rice? After leaving the Clinton administration, Rice became the managing director at IntelliBridge, a strategic analysis firm in Washington, D.C. And one of her clients happened to be, oh yeah, Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda. And 20 years after the Rwandan genocide, when Kagame was supporting the really violent, vicious rebel forces in the Democratic Republic of Congo, yet another genocide. Rice acknowledged that she was close to Kagame and did everything she could to delay the United Nations taking any action against that, shall we say, next level of genocide over in that area of Africa. In 1998, she was the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and she played a key role in coordinating President Clinton's 12-day trip to Africa. She was the one who engineered and defended Clinton's preeminent airstrike against the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum, Sudan. 13 Tomahawk missiles, August 20th. And then in the end, and by the way, a bunch of people killed, all sorts of facilities destroyed. And then in the end, officials concluded, quote, that there was no proof that the plant had been manufacturing or storing nerve gas, as initially suspected by the Americans, or had been linked to Osama bin Laden, etc., etc., etc. And by the way, Susan Rice is not adverse to putting America's sons and daughters in harm's way or using American power to achieve their progressive world ends. In talking about Sudan and all the nonsense going on there, quote, I think the first thing that the international community ought to do is strike Sudanese air assets, their aircraft, their helicopters, their airfields that have been used relentlessly to attack innocent civilians. Another option, albeit more controversial even than airstrikes, would be to blockade Port Sudan. Obviously none of that occurred, but it does give you kind of a peep into her mindset. Think about what's going on in the Mideast right now, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Africa, and by the way, what's about to start going on again in Syria. Wait and see. On May 12, 2008, she told the New York Times that Obama had not pledged to meet unconditionally with Iran or any other rogue state, despite the fact he was on a national debate uh, in the election, saying exactly that a week before. In other words, kind of like the Yoda mind trick. Uh, I wasn't here. He didn't say that. Well, you know, the same as her Benghazi, her Benghazi interviews. On July 21, 2008, she said, quote, Obama bows to nobody in his understanding of this world, unquote. I think we've all seen the pictures of Obama bowing to Saudi princes and etc. We won't go there. And she pumped up her chest when 
she claimed to have gotten the United Nations to impose sanctions on Iran in 2010, which was just a guise. I mean, it was just a feint. It was a red herring. Actually, what happened in that case, and this will give you another insight into how she likes to kind of, should we say, manipulate the truth to her benefit or to the benefit of her ideological aims. That measure was only supported in the Security Council because China and Russia supported it with the assurance that it would not impair their trade with Iran. In other words, this was sanctions without teeth, kind of like what we're seeing again. You know, these folks have a pattern. And you may be interested to know that about a third of her net worth, which I'm digging into and will bring you, I hope, at a later date, is tied up in oil producers, pipeline operators, and related energy industries, particularly in Canada. Well, gee, what about this fossil fuel deal? What about the earth incinerating in just a few years? In a December 2013 interview with 60 Minutes, Rice puffed out her chest again. She's really good at this. Quote, The fact that we have not had a successful attack on our homeland since 9-11 should not be diminished. Unquote. In other words, bolstering her, her boss, Obama. The Boston Marathon bombing, folks, which killed three people and injured 264, had been just a few weeks before. And I think we can all remember in June of 2014, you know, the Bergdahl desertion deal over there in Afghanistan. Rice went on national TV again. She really needs to not do that. And she contended that Bergdahl (laughs) had served the United States with honor. Remember that Bergdahl was court-martialed, pleaded guilty to charges of desertion and misbehavior before the enemy, was dishonorably discharged, reduced in rank, and fined 1000 per month from his pay for 10 months, although he escaped prison time. Susan Rice was part of that infamous meeting in January of 2017, Biden, Obama, Comey, Clapper, and Susan Rice. Yes, discussing Hillary's false flag of Russian interference and Russian collusion with Donald Trump. We know where that led. I think we can call that at least sedition, probably treason. I think this will give you the flavor of Susan Rice, who right now runs Joe Biden at the behest of Barack Obama, George Soros, and the, shall we say, inner circle of the Obama cabal, including Valerie Jarrett, who we'll discuss in the coming weeks. Now let's talk about Anthony Blinken. Anthony Blinken, excuse me. Blinken, like Obama, went to Columbia Law School. Ah, you know, maybe that's a university we ought to think about shutting down. Under Obama, he rose to become Deputy Secretary of State. He obviously had links to Clinton. When he left that role in 2017, when Trump was coming in, Blinken co-founded a firm named West Exec Advisors, which boasts, quote, it brings the situation room to the boardroom, unquote. And his clients include Uber, FedEx, Blackstone. Oh, there's Blackstone again. And his main shtick was leveraging his connections in the government for money. In fact, at least eight former West exec colleagues of his now serve in executive branch roles. Director of National Intelligence Averill Haynes, Press Secretary or former Press Secretary Jen Psaki, Deputy Director of the CIA David Cohen, and Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. From January 2019 to August 2020, he joined Joe Biden at the Penn Biden. You know, you know all the lawsuits about getting... Uh, Joe Biden's documents, well, it's all kind of tied in. 
at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Oh, well, we have global engagement now, don't we? And then he went on to help Biden on the campaign trail. Understand that Blinken got his start, like Susan Rice, under the Clinton administration, and then rose rapidly after Obama came to power. And he and his wife, and it's interesting how he met her, I'll tell you in a moment, both are involved, or were involved, with media. She was at Axios, a left-wing outlet, and he was the global affairs analyst at CNN in February of 2017. By the way, his wife, Evan Ryan, he met at a White House party during the Clinton administration. And she, like him, a longtime government official, joined the Biden administration just in the last year or so as deputy assistant to the president. And though I don't have the figures on Susan Rice's net worth, which I'm sure is substantial, it seems that Blinken's net worth has risen by over $10 million in the last few years. In fact, in 2018, he and his wife bought a home in the D.C. suburbs for $4.3 million, took out a $1.1 million loan to do it, and they accumulated lots of stock in a handful of companies. By the way, folks, the numbers I'm about to tell you are not dollar amounts, they're numbers of shares. Check what these shares are going for in these companies. Hundreds of dollars each. Google, 195000 Berkshire Hathaway, 139000 Apple, 120, 120000 Facebook, 80000 Now, think about the effect that somebody as highly placed in this administration has when it comes down to, oh, shall we say, censorship, you know, government censorship through its ties in the FBI, et cetera, et cetera, with all these social media agencies. Quite interesting how this kind of all revolves around itself, right? And can you trust these folks to talk about regulations, antitrust stuff, and censorship itself when it comes to the companies they're heavily invested in and rub elbows with? But going back on Tony Blinken, he has really deep roots to Europe, and he believes in the collective. And not just the collective people, but the collective of countries. Quote, put simply, the world is safer for the American people when we have friends, partners, and allies. He describes Europe as a vital partner. Okay. He's adamantly opposed to Trump's plan, which had been to remove troops from Germany. And on every major foreign policy issue, terrorism, climate, pandemics, trade, China, the Iran nuclear deal, I can go on and on. His recurring mantra is that the U.S. should work with its allies and within international treaties and organizations. Now, that only suits them when it suits them because treaties have to be ratified by the Senate, and they're busy working on the U.N. Small Arms Agreement and the WHO Pandemic Control Agreement and the Iran nuclear deal, none of which they plan to bring before the Senate. A recent quote earlier this year from Blinken, quote, There is a premium still, and in some ways even more than before, on American engagement, on American leadership, unquote. Well, I think we can see that so-called leadership and we can see that so-called engagement right before our very eyes, folks. How's it going for us? Long before this, and he speaks fluent French, by the way, he had moved to Paris as a child after his parents divorced. His mother's name was Judith. His half-sister, a gal by the name of Leah Pissar, P-I-S-A-R. She lives in New York. She has a home in France also. And she heads the board of the Aladdin Project, which is a Paris-based nonprofit organization promoting multicultural understanding. And 
Interestingly enough, and here's kind of the rest of the story on Tony Blinken. He spent a six-year term in the Senate as one of Biden's top aides when Cadaver was a senator. Remember that Biden, in 2002, was on the Foreign Relations Committee, and he became the senior Democrat on that committee from 1997 until he became vice president in 2009. This also gives Blinken strong ties to other close Biden advisors, including Averill Haynes. Oh, there's the linkage back to Susan Rice, deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and then later deputy national security advisor at the White House. And Biden's closest advisor in the Senate, Chief of Staff Ted Kaufman, who, by the way, led the presidential transition, quote-unquote, of Trump to cadaver Obama. By the way, when he met his wife, Evan Ryan, in 1995, when he was working at the White House as a speechwriter, by the way, on the National Security Council, she was a scheduler for First Lady Hillary Clinton. And later, she went to work for Clinton during Obama's years, as one of her top assistants for intergovernmental affairs, and then as Assistant Secretary of State for Education and Cultural Affairs. Hillary Clinton, in fact, folks, attended the Blinken-Ryan wedding in 2002. So did Susan Rice. And it seems that Blinken's half-sister, Leah, also worked at the State Department and as Communications Director at, oh, you guessed it, the National Security Council during the Clinton administration back there in the 90s. Blinken's uncle served as U.S. ambassador to Belgium, and Blinken's father was ambassador to Hungary. And Blinken's stepfather, they go way back in politics, was actually an advisor to President John F. Kennedy. And by the way, he, like Rice, and as you'll see in the upcoming weeks when we discuss others in the control cabal, is a war hawk, a warmonger. He thinks nothing of spending America's blood and treasure, you know, to cement those alliances and partnerships. Oh, well, that's just going great. Just ask the BRICS nations or the Road and Belt Initiative participants. I've brought you those histories, too, on therightsideradio.com. Under Obama, in his roles as Deputy Secretary of State and at the National Security Council, Blinken, I'm giving you a for instance, advocated strongly for more robust, robust, quote-unquote, like bombing the hell out of them, U.S. involvement in the Syria conflict. And he supported the armed intervention in Libya. In other words, the murder of Gaddafi by Clinton. Here's a quote from Anthony Blinken, which is the final part of the rest of his story. Quote, diplomacy needs to be supplemented by deterrence, and force can be a necessary adjunct to effective diplomacy. In Syria, we rightly sought to avoid another Iraq by not doing too much, but we made the opposite error of doing too little. Unquote. Oh, well, that kind of brings us back to the rant story. And one last rest of the story piece for you on Antony Blinken. Guess who put together and organized that letter, you know, from the 51 top intelligence people about the Hunter Biden laptop? You know, it was Russian disinformation. That's right, Anthony Blinken. Okay, let's see how much rat-a-tat-tat we can cram into the remaining time. Here we go. Let's start off with some economic stats that you haven't heard. Did you know that we've added $2 trillion, $2 trillion in debt in just several months since the debt ceiling was thrown away till December 25 by McCarthy? Along those lines, I'm all for Jim Jordan being Speaker. We need somebody who is tough, who is smart, who is unrelenting, and is conservative. And the liberals who are tweaking the 
<laughs> spineless 20 or so Republicans at this broadcast time who are voting against him, folks out in those districts, wake up. You need to make your voice heard. Right now, the Democrats are playing these rhinos like, like a fiddle. Household savings have been going down $100 billion per month. You might have noticed it in your bank account. Most economists are projecting household savings to be depleted in the next 60 to 90 days. The mortgage application index, this will tell you what's coming at the housing market, is down from a high of 500, that's kind of their their levels, if you will, to a low of 136.6. Lowest ever, folks. Commercial real estate is worse shape than the housing market. And the related bonds that do these big commercial buildings and office buildings, they're called CMBS, Commercial Mortgage Backed Securities, are in deep doo-doo. In fact, the office CMBS delinquency rate, in other words, no money's being paid on the bonds, peaked at slightly over 10% in 2012, you know, the last big economic poo pile, and they dipped to about, oh, 1%, give or take, in 2022, and they are back up and rising like a rocket ship to just about 6%. This is a coming wreck. As interest rates increase, the value of the bonds that they represent decrease, right? Rates move inversely, or yields move inversely to value. Banks in the United States are about $600 billion underwater on the value of their bonds versus what they're carrying them for on their books. Hmm, what could go wrong here? Although the government doesn't tell you this, I've told you this. So two-thirds of the new jobs that they're touting are part-time jobs. One half of those are people getting second and third jobs to try and make ends meet. But here's something else that you ought to know. We have lost in the last two to three months 650,000 full-time jobs. Gee, they forgot to tell us that, didn't they? And you've heard it from probably various other sources about the new records. Average payments on new homes, house rental costs, new car payments, used car payments, average student loan payments. Did you know that the average household credit card debt is now at 7300 Remember, this is 20-29% interest rates. But that's okay. We'll just listen to Cadaver and his crew up there, and they can tell us how good it is. And speaking of Cadaver and his caring, his empathy, or should I say Cadaver Obama, and their empathy for the American people, you know... All the countries in the world are evacuating people from the Mideast. Government planes, military planes, no cost to the folks, getting everybody out. Well, not the United States. No. No, the United States rented uh, a cruise ship from one of the cruise lines and <laughs> is bringing people like just across the, the little bit of sea there to Crete. You know, one step removed from Israel. And here's the best part. To get on that ship, you had to sign an agreement with the government and a blank promissory note promising to pay back the costs of your evacuation. <laughs> Terrific. Then last week, there was a CBS uh, 60 Minutes deal. The uh, CBS guy was Scott Penny, and he, <laughs> he asked Biden, are you sure you want to run again? And Biden's reply, I got to give you the quote, yes, because I'm sure, look, when I ran, I said the world's at an inflection point. The world's changing, but we have an opportunity to make it. So imagine it. Imagine we were able to succeed in getting the Middle East put in place where we have a normalization of relations. I think we can do that. Imagine what happens, in fact, if we, reunite, if we unite all of Europe 
and Russian President Putin is finally put down where he cannot cause the kind of trouble he's been causing. We have enormous opportunities, enormous opportunities to make it a better world, unquote. That's right, Joe, you build it back better, buddy. And then, kind of in keeping with the main thrust of our show, guess what? We have another Obama lackey being appointed as the ambassador to Israel right now. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is set to hold a confirmation hearing, oh my God, for Jack Lew. You've probably heard that name. Jack, working for Obama, and still working for Obama, was responsible for administering sanctions relief to Iran as a result of the Obama nuclear Iran deal. And by the way, he's been booed by pro-Jewish crowds at various speeches over the last few years. And Lou, like the rest of the crew I've been telling you about, got his start with Bill Clinton. Aren't we just a wonderful little family? And of course, the Democrats are saying you need to confirm him because, you know, with this crisis in the Mideast caused by us, we must have an ambassador. Oh yeah, never let a crisis go to waste. And good news, out in Oakland, they're finally moving to recall Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price, a Soros lackey. Oh, you know, here we are, back to the cabal again. And finally, the people of Oakland are getting motivated since there's been a 35% increase in armed robberies in the city and a 382% increase in burglaries in the city. And the Soros DA is doing nothing. In other illegal alien news, it appears that four or five illegal aliens broke into an MJ Diamond store at a mall in Michigan. They smashed the display cases with hammers, pepper sprayed employees, and then ran out with handfuls of jewelry. And along those lines, and remember my warning of last week, there were 1.8 million encounters between October 22nd and August 2023, and a federal watchdog discovered in September with a long-delayed FOIA request that the Department of Homeland Security, our DHS, you know, run by Mayorkas, Oh, another Obama associate. The DHS has no way of keeping track of all the illegal immigrants. Oh, as if we didn't know that. And DHS estimated in the documents they finally provided that roughly 853,955 illegal aliens were overstaying their visas in the United States in fiscal year 2022. Remember, fiscal years go October to October for our federal government. And tying right into that and to my warning last week, did you know that the encounters, remember folks, there's a lot of people that are not encountered, that the encounters at the border five years ago yielded three people on the terror watch list. So far this year, so far, there's 151 folks on the terror watch list that have been confronted at the southern border. That doesn't count the ones that got away. And if you go by the stats, which is 0.0084% illegals encountered in fiscal year 2023 were on the terror watch list, that 151. If you take that rate and you multiply it by DHS's estimate of 1.5 million getaways, it means there's another 1,260 people on the terror watch list in the United States just in the last year. Ah, don't you feel safe? And listen, like a bad night infomercial, we have more from you from our vaunted Obama-Biden administration. You know those people that they put into the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration and the EPA? Remember how this all works? Well, the NHTSA, the 
Highway Safety Administration, has come up with new regulations. You'll love this. And this is going to hammer the already struggling car industry. Uh, they want the miles per gallon increased on cars to 66 miles per gallon and on trucks to 54 miles per gallon by 2032. By the way, in 2020, cars averaged 24 miles per gallon and the average truck got 17 miles per gallon. I don't know if you looked at new car prices lately, but get ready for them to go way up. And then the EPA, not to be outdone by the Highway Safety Administration, is now requiring, or is it trying to require, new car sales to be 60% battery-powered electric by 2030. That's 2030. That's like five years from now, folks. Six years from now. And 67% by 2032. Now, putting aside further surges in prices for raw materials, you know, it's called inflation and regulation on the mining industry. Electric cars currently cost an average of $20,000 more than the same model that is fossil fuel driven. Better hold on to your wallets. Or better yet, get organized. Go vote. Make yourself heard. Use the word no. And speaking of elections, good news in Louisiana. The Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards, is out. And Attorney General Jeff Landry, Republican, won his bid by a huge majority, by the way. He got more than 50% of the vote out of a field of 14 candidates. Jeff Landry and the Attorney General from Missouri are the ones who have brought this lawsuit about censorship against Biden and who are doing just great things. In addition to that good news, Louisianans voted to amend their constitution, 72.6% of Louisianans. And the amendment to the constitution stipulates, you're going to love this, Quote, no funds, goods, or services donated by foreign governments or a non-governmental source shall be used to conduct elections unless provided for in the election code and subject to restrictions provided by general law. Yay. Oh, I bet you Zucker, baby, is just fit to be tied. He can't spend $450 million, at least in Louisiana, for his drop boxes and ballot harvesting. On the education front, the news gets dimmer and dimmer as the cadaver Obama administration gives the NEA, the National Teachers Union, more and more power and say in federal education policy. You know what the ACT is, right? The SATs and the ACT? Well, those are the gold standards in predicting college performance. I mean, if you don't have a good score, you don't get into college. And they have all sorts of studies that these tests work and they accurately predict in the preponderance of cases of who will and who will not succeed in a university atmosphere. Well, on this year's ACT, first time ever, 43% of high school students failed to meet any of the college entrance benchmarks. That's any. And you know what the lowest was? English composition. <laughs> it had a benchmark of 18 average from all these students. Unbelievable. Before 2019... 74% of colleges would require students to submit the SAT or ACT as part of their college applications. But, folks, that just isn't fair, you know. And in those cases where the students' ACT scores were below the benchmarks, the admissions officer for the university would tell the student to enroll in a two-year college instead and then transfer the credits in after they proved themselves down at that lower tier of higher education. But, given the pandemic and George Floyd, and the teachers' union, and the corruption between the teachers' union and cadaver Obama. So-called civil rights groups 
spelled communist, pressed colleges to drop the SAT and ACT as evaluating factors because, oh, it, you know, discriminates against minority populations and poor students. Rubbish. In the meantime, the American public, parents and prospective parents particularly, 67% want SAT and ACT scores to be part of the college application process. But who cares what the public wants? You know, they're just a bunch of parental domestic terrorists. We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Remember, look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.